Well, of course, a very big thank you to Vodacom executives. Much appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest speaker this evening is Emmy Award-winning reporter Simon Marks. Well, good afternoon, everybody there from a crisp winter's day here in Washington, D.C. And let me say, first of all, an enormous thank you for the invitation to speak at this year's Vodacom Journalist of the Year Awards. I'm hugely grateful to the folks at Vodacom for hosting this annual event, for honoring the quality of journalism in South Africa and for giving me the great honor of speaking to all of you today. And I particularly want to thank my very good friend, Mapi Mkhlangu, for making all of this happen. Mapi and I go back a very long way, and she is just as extraordinary an industry leader today as she was a producer on SAFM far longer ago than either of us dares to remember. Mapi, thank you for everything you've done for all of us. And while I know you can't wait to find out who has won this year's awards, I want to be the first to congratulate everyone who walks away with a gong and also those who do not, because it's not just about the winning. It is about the broad scope of excellence within the industry that this evening is celebrating. Now, I was hoping to be with you in person, but after 29 years in Washington, D.C., for the first time ever, I've got family members descending upon the U.S. Capitol for the annual Thanksgiving holiday. If you're not familiar with Thanksgiving, and I wasn't when I moved here, it is literally the biggest holiday of the year in the United States, far bigger than Christmas. And for the first three or four years that I was here, I never quite understood that and would wonder why on the last Thursday of every November, I was always the only person heading into the city to go to work. By the fifth year, I'd pretty much figured it out. I am nothing if not a quick study. Now, I was asked to focus tonight on the subject of misinformation. But before I get to that, a little bit of information about me. In case our paths have never crossed, I run a global broadcast news agency called Feature Story News. And before that, I was a reporter for ITN in the UK. I worked alongside Jeremy Thompson for a bit, your guest of honour at last year's awards. I've appeared on a whole array of South African news outlets dating back again longer than I really care to remember. There used to be a radio syndication service in London called IRN International that conveyed some of my early reports to Capital 604 down on the beach, Radio Bop and 702. And then in around 1996, the then chief executive of SABC, Jill Chisholm, who quite by chance had been my boss back at ITN when she was living in exile in London, called me up in Washington and asked if I could do some reporting from the US for the rebranded post-apartheid SABC TV and SAFM. Well, fast forward to today and you'll encounter many of my colleagues appearing on SABC TV and SAFM. I am currently over at ENCA, providing them with their coverage from the United States. And you can also hear me pretty regularly on John Perlman's Afternoon Drive on 702, on John Matham's programme on Cape Talk, and also on the hourly news bulletins of Hot 1027. 
And that really brings me to my first point. While we are all living through times of grave uncertainty, partly, of course, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, but with economic recovery now exacerbated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, comparing and contrasting the South African media landscape today with what existed three decades ago, or even earlier than that, still, I think, requires us all to be optimistic about a present and a future in which there are a multitude of voices on the air, in print and behind the scenes, working diligently to hold the powerful to account. And let me tell you from my own personal background why that actually thrills me. My mother was born in Joburg. She was raised in Hillbrow in the 1930s. She went on to be educated at Witz. Her parents are buried at West Park Cemetery. And as a young girl, her father used to gather the family around the radio and listen to live broadcasts over RSA, Radio South Africa, that were relayed from the BBC. She was electrified by them and decided that she wanted to be an announcer for the SABC, which had itself been created when she was only just over a year old. Well, when she became a teenager and became increasingly politically conscious about the inequities she was witnessing in Dr. Favort's South Africa, she realised her plan was not going to be viable, at least not for someone of her political views. And so at the age of 23, she left the country. Having scraped enough money together from family members, she sailed to London. It would be 40 years before she made a return visit to a South Africa that obviously was transformed from the country that she left behind. So the plurality of broadcast voices that go beyond what was in her infancy a highly controlled state radio outlet constantly being outpaced by the amazing work of newspapers like the Rand Daily Mail, magazines like Drum. Well, it's something that millions of families across South Africa would have once thought unthinkable. Yes, the 5th of January 1976 has finally arrived and with it the birth of a full television service. The arrival of television, belatedly in South Africa in 1976, the extraordinary work of particularly 702, the launch of now multiple 24-hour channels, digital outlets, all of that means South Africa's story can now be told to South Africans by broadcasters as never before. And while it's never easy facing the prospect of cutbacks, economic vicissitudes, job losses and an economic picture that can sometimes mitigate against the costly work that really good probing journalism entails, it is, I think, important not to lose sight of the opportunities that do exist to engage in acts of reporting on a daily basis that simply would not have been tolerated not so many years ago. And it would also seem like a good moment to say to those forces in society that do have the resources to back independent journalism that now is the time to double down and dig deep. And that is especially true because of the prevalence of misinformation in all of our societies. I have just spent the last 10 days coming to grips with the realization that no, Donald Trump is not going away. He's back in the game, campaigning for a return to the White House. His account on Twitter has been restored by Elon Musk. 
for however much longer that particular platform remains viable, given the bizarre spectacle that we've all witnessed over the last month. It is true to say that the midterm elections here earlier this month did not deliver Trump-backed Republicans the scale of victory that they expected. But it is also far too early, as some are doing, to proclaim that the threat to American democracy is over. It is not in the past. How can it be when a crucial Senate runoff election is taking place next month in the state of Georgia? There, the Trump-backed Republican candidate Herschel Walker, a former American football star, denies evolution, says China is exporting its bad air to the US and that all of America's good air is going to China and has adhered himself to the entirely false claim that America's 2020 presidential election was rigged. Take a look at the state of Arkansas, where Sarah Huckabee Sanders has just been elected the next governor. You will remember the name because she was Donald Trump's White House press secretary for two years during his presidency, constantly lying to the press and the public on his behalf. That is not a value judgment. It's not an interpretation. It's a fact. She and a host of other Trump White House insiders now carving out new political roles for themselves owe their careers to their willingness to sacrifice any adherence to the truth. It is demonstrably false to claim that America's elections are riddled with fraud, that Joe Biden couldn't have won more votes than Donald Trump. Were those things true, courts across the land, many of them presided over by Trump-appointed judges, would have found in Donald Trump's favour, rather than throwing every single case that his lawyers presented out on their collective ear. And yet, 60% of Republican voters now tell pollsters they believe that Joe Biden is illegitimate in office, that the 2020 election was fraudulent. 60%. Now, to put that into perspective, only 13% of Americans believe in the existence of Bigfoot, a monster said to inhabit American forests. There is, of course, nothing uniquely American about misinformation, nor anything uniquely new about it. A former boss of mine, Derek Taylor, who used to run the Associated Press's television news service and who was a fantastic TV correspondent in his own right back in the 1970s and 80s for ITN, has written this book called Fake News. As the cover art suggests, he traces the deliberate dissemination of misinformation all the way back to the Tudors, who ran things in Britain in the 16th century. When social media has put mass communication in the hands of anyone with a smartphone, he asks, what hope is there for the rest of us who just want to know what's really going on? Now, my own first journalistic brush with misinformation actually has a South African connection. In June of 1988, I was the first TV journalist to interview Albie Sachs following his near-death experience in Maputo. He had been flown to London secretly for medical treatment, and through various contacts, I managed to get in touch with him. It was all pretty cloak and dagger, and it needed to be because the apartheid authorities had cost him an arm, the sight of an eye, and it was obviously feared that they might seek to finish the ghastly work they had started. So my ITN film crew and I were sent to a series of addresses across North London where we were checked out by various ANC contacts. And once we'd passed muster, we were eventually given the address of the real safe house where LB Sachs was recovering. 
I think it was the first interview in which he voiced the notion that vengeance would not get him his arm back, the precursor to his remarkable memoir, The Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter. Now, in order to be balanced, since Albie Sachs claimed in our interview that he'd been blown up on the orders of the apartheid authorities, we sought comment from South Africa House in London, and we were invited in to interview an apartheid-era diplomat who assured us that Pretoria had reason to believe the bombing was the result of an internal feud within the ANC. Rival groups fighting for influence were to blame. Certainly, he said, the South African authorities had nothing to do with it. It was an absolute fabrication, voiced with the kind of convivial nod and a wink that indicated he knew he was lying, and he knew we also knew that he was lying. After that, I seemed to find myself on the embassy's cocktail party list, invited to the Swish London apartment of embassy spokesman Michael de Morgan. One of SABC's first television newsreaders back in the 1970s, by 1987, he was officially a propagandist in the UK for the last vestiges of apartheid's grip on power. But at least then, the misinformation wasn't amplified relentlessly and irresponsibly via social media. Social media didn't exist. The merchants of misinformation, at least those operating outside rigidly controlled societies, could only seek to use their power on the margins. Before the internet, sure, there were conspiracy theories that circulated, sometimes via secretly exchanged booklets or among small groups of like-minded people. You could go into small American towns in the back of beyond and find people with some pretty odd views. But we didn't really have to worry about any of that. They were all on the fringes. We reporters were the mainstream. And we didn't only swim in it. Let's be honest, we controlled it. As a young reporter working on ITV's News at 10 in Britain, at the time watched by around 12 million people a night, when the programme went off air at 28 minutes past 10 each evening, by 29 minutes past 10, the entire staff was in the wine bar on the other side of the street. Except for one person. We all drew straws each night to see who was going to be left behind to answer what were quaintly known as viewer calls. The only engagement we had with any of those 12 million people was in the minutes after the programme went off air when most nights maybe a dozen of them would call to complain. And that wasn't easy because finding our phone number alone took a fair old bit of cunning and guile. An enormous logbook was used to record the details of every call that we did receive. Mrs Jones in Birmingham thought we were unfair to Margaret Thatcher. Mr Smith in Arrogate didn't like the way we treated the issue of striking coal miners. Mr McGonagall in Edinburgh called in to point out that we got the Glasgow Rangers final score wrong. That kind of stuff. It was all dutifully noted down in a book that no one ever looked at again nor discussed. But at least we'd done our bit. The next morning, we went back into work and produced a half-hour news programme, again to our specifications, not theirs. We were the trained professionals, and other than giving them a witty and finally story at the end of the bulletin, we wanted to tell them what they needed to know to become responsible citizens in a democracy rather than what they wanted to know. It was all fundamentally paternalistic. 
All of that has substantially changed. The power dynamic has shifted. By the time many of our viewers get round to watching us or our readers get round to picking up a newspaper in South Africa, the US or the UK, they already think they know what's happened in the world today because they've encountered it on social media. And in many cases, they have encountered misinformation, some of it deliberately stoked by foreign actors, some of it by domestic politicians, some of it by those fringe conspiracy theorists who now are as mainstream as we all are in the ocean of Twitter. There is, I'm afraid, no way of putting the genie back in the bottle. In America, we've just gone through an election in which President Biden now insists he was always a cockeyed optimist, that's his phrase, and yet just three weeks ago, he was warning the country against embarking on what he darkly called the path to chaos. Yet despite his repeated excoriation of his opponents for trafficking in misinformation and the fury he's expressed towards social media companies for hosting it, he has not offered a single proposal to overcome it for fear that he might run afoul of America's First Amendment, which of course guarantees freedom of speech. Now, everyone watching this knows that when you report, whether it's for SABC, ENCA, Newsroom Africa, EWN, The Star, Business Day or any other outlet, there are rules that apply. You can't simply say anything you like, no matter how outlandish. Even on a radio phone-in programme, callers can't simply make any accusation they want without being held to account for it. But the owners of Facebook, Twitter and all the other platforms have managed to get away with an audacious argument that says we're not like a TV program or a radio show or a newspaper. We're more like the phone company. Telcom isn't responsible for what you say to your mate when you're using their phone lines. So we shouldn't be responsible for what conspiracy theorists say when they're using our platforms. And in America, at least so far, hardly anyone in a position of power has said boo to the social media goose. I would love to be able to tell you that at some point in America's next presidential election, whoever ends up running for the nation's highest office will actually be asked how they intend to prevent the nation's very democratic freedoms from being destroyed by people who take advantage of those democratic freedoms. But that may be wishful thinking, given the sea change in a US media landscape that increasingly wants to tell only one side of the story, whether that's from the right or from the left, to people who themselves are from the right or from the left. And so I'm living in a country where COVID-19 vaccine denialism has contributed to the deaths of one million Americans and counting and left the country susceptible to every pandemic variant that comes along. Election denialism saw many Republican candidates even refusing to say they would accept the outcome of the very midterm races in which they were recently running. And the country, of course, came perilously close to the brink of losing everything in last year's Capitol Hill riot in which, and I can never quite believe I'm saying this, Trump's mob was trying to find Vice President Mike Pence in order to hang him on a gallows they had erected in the Capitol grounds. And to think this, used, this country used to argue its democracy was a beacon shining on a hill and illuminating the path for other nations to follow. 
There are practical things we can all do to try and safeguard our societies. And the most important, of course, is to keep asking tough questions. There's a veteran White House correspondent by the name of Sam Donaldson, who has always argued there is no such thing as a difficult question. It's only the answers that can prove problematic. But you do need to get the chance to ask them. And in one specific area, I would like to be bold enough today to suggest change. I am always struck whenever I attend press conferences hosted by South African newsmakers that they adopt a practice that first emerged in the Soviet Union in question and answer sessions there. I used to be based in Moscow and had to endure them. Any reporter called upon is expected to ask all the questions he or she wants to ask in a block. The newsmaker notes them down and then answers them in the order in which they were asked. It's a clever technique for the newsmaker because it mitigates against follow-ups, and that is precisely how the Soviets designed it. No give and take. Ask us all the questions you've got in bulk. We'll give you all the answers, and you won't get a further chance to get a word in edgeways. I don't think it's a great system. And if you want to underpin democracy at a time when, let's be honest, it is under threat, reporters and newsmakers of every political stripe might want to sit down and think about doing away with it. You might wonder legitimately, given everything I've said, whether I'm optimistic. And the answer, truthfully, is that I might be ever so slightly more optimistic or perhaps ever so slightly less pessimistic about South Africa than America right now. The recent amendments to the Film and Publications Act there, if they come with effective enforcement, have the potential to make social media a more responsible experience for South Africans than social media is for Americans. And because you're working within a constitution drafted in 1996 rather than 1787, well, there's a reason the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg advised other countries to emulate South Africa's modern constitutional approach rather than America's. There is one other reason for optimism, of course, and that is the quality of the work we are all honouring at these Vodacom Journalist of the Year National Awards. Hard work, courage and a real commitment to safeguarding democracy has gone into all of them. And that alone is something to cherish and celebrate at a time when we all may feel there aren't too many opportunities out there to do very much of that. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for inviting me. Congratulations to the winners and have a fantastic evening.